worshipers, as we saw Abel and Cain in the first worship service ever in recorded human history. Then we looked at what kind of worship God requires from His people, that we have to be diligent as we looked at how God instructed the people of Israel, how they should worship Him in Deuteronomy, and the purity of our worship, and why we worship, the motivation of the worship, and then how Scripture plays, how God's Word is the center for worship last time we saw. So we've been walking through the Old Testament and we've worked our way through literally Genesis, Deuteronomy, and we looked at music worship at some point as well, actually. I think I, I, I forgot to mention that. So we looked at the Torah, the, the, that's the law. We looked at the prophets and we saw what God's word teaches about worship in there. And we looked at the writings, both in, in wisdom writings and also the historical accounts in um, Psalm and Nehemiah. So it's not an, a comprehensive view of worship, but we are just kind of looking to get us a framework of what worship is. So today we will have the last two, uh, the next to last uh, lesson, if you will, on worship, and we will see it from the accounts of the gospel. Next week, we'll see it from the account of the apostles, and that will be the last sermon on worship. So here we are in John chapter 4, a very familiar passage in Scripture where Jesus is in a place where he knows that he wouldn't be welcomed. He's not expecting uh, uh, the warmest reception from the Samaritans. Right, because he was a Jew, and the Samaritans and the Jews at that time. I'm just drawing the context before we read the text. And then he engages in a conversation that was anything but conventional. I mean, he was a Jew talking to a Samaritan. He was a man talking to a woman, and the woman is actually at the well. This is a story of the woman at the well, right? At a at a well where it's not really the right time for them to come, and that's not the time that people came to draw water. So this conversation in which we find ourselves is anything but conventional. But the conversation, however, is nothing but conventional. And the conversation is not necessarily to, to communicate to us some kind of cultural trend. But the focus of the conversation is the life-giving and the life-sustaining element in this world, which is water. It revolves around water. Water is life-giving and life-sustaining. The only reason, scientists would tell us today, that we have life on Earth is because the Earth has water. That's why we can't live on Mars. There's no water there. We can't give life nor sustain it. So the conversation, the focus of conversation leaves, seems to be about that element in this world, but Jesus stretches this life-giving and sustaining nature of water, not only confined to this world, to this planet, but he expands it into eternity. 
and many sermons I've heard present this conversation to be about the woman or to be about the water or to be about how how countercultural Jesus was. You know, he went here and there. I mean, those things are peripherally there. But this whole passage is about Jesus putting into display his life-giving power and declaring to the world, declaring to the woman that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, John tells us the entirety of the book of John is written in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing that you may have life in his name. That's the whole, that's the whole reason, that's the whole purpose of the book of John. So this is just a little snippet of that reality happening in this conversation. So as you're reading this and as we're discussing this, don't forget, this is about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, according to John chapter 1, verse 29. So it is in this context that this conversation, this dialogue, dialogue about worship takes place. And we will pick it up in verse 19 and read it through to verse 26 together. Mid-conversation, we pick it up. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on, on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So in this dialogue I, I don't have any fancy outlines for you today so if you're looking to take notes just just follow along i don't have any any fancy outlines for us to track but in this dialogue we see this woman in verse 20, in verse 19 seemingly understanding who jesus is she has this theoretical understanding of who jesus is he is a prophet and as we saw last week in our Q&A, a prophet is just one who speaks on behalf of God and one who interprets the supernatural will of God to fit and make sense in the natural realm. So she, she grasps that. She has a theoretical understanding of who he is, and that's why she says to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. I perceive some translations have. So this is her perception. She gets it. And based on this perception, based on this understanding, the woman communicates a couple of observations that she's made about worship. 
And now some people say, you know, she's deflecting because Jesus has called her out for being an adulterous woman and having five husbands and even living in, in, a, 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 in an adulterous relationship right now. So she's trying to, I think it's more than that. When you look at the whole picture, Jesus is talking to her about salvation. And salvation and worship are really synonymous as we will see. So she just makes this observation. She doesn't even ask a legitimate question or an explicit question. She didn't ask him, where should I worship? Should I worship where my father worship? Or should I worship over here in Jerusalem? Should I come to church every Sunday? Or should I just do it on YouTube? Should I just go to this church or that church? That's not even the question here. She's just making an observation. But we are so accustomed. I don't know. I was so, I, this was a, such a familiar passage to me that I thought that she had asked the question. And, and that's also... We, how we see in his response. She's just making an observation about worship. So what does she observe? First thing that she observes is that how and where her fathers, the Samaritans, traditionally worshipped. This would have been, by the way, Mount Gerizim, which is the site of the Samarian or the Samaritan temple that was believed to be built after Nehemiah's cleansing of the Jerusalem temple in Nehemiah chapter 13. You know, you guys remember those, those nice names that we read last week or two weeks ago, right? There was a couple of new ones. Sam Ballot and Tobiah, those were, don't name your kids that, by the way. Or, I mean, you can name them. I've never heard of anybody naming their kids Sam Ballot and Tobiah. But um, and then and then there was even a priest um, that was that was there, Eliashib. Um, it's believed that they actually went to Samaria, where Sambalat was the governor at the time, and built this to compete with the temple that was in Jerusalem. So they started worshiping there. This was a site of worship that has some biblical claim to be an Abrahamic religion, even. Because Abraham went and worshipped in Shechem, which is in Samaria. So the people there were like, oh yeah, you know, Abraham, our father, you know, he worshipped here. So we should worship here. And this is how the temple was built. They can, they can appeal to be an Abrahamic religion. And this was also a place that included the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible. Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy, yes, those five books. I was just testing to see if everybody knew what those Bible books were. And, and they, they did believe in those, so they appealed to be a mosaic religion, right? But it's also a place, and the reason why the Samaritans and the Jews didn't really talk to each other is because Samaria was known to be a very affluent, very liberal very progressive culture, very inclusive. You would see in um, 2 Kings chapter 9, if you go and take a look at it, um, you, you would see how that culture was inundated by just this synchronizing and fusing different religions together. Because it was a place of worship that synchronized Various worship 
methods and practices so that the people that live there can be satisfied and each god can also be honored in his own right. Small g, God, for that matter. And yet they kind of included Yahweh worship there. So it's very kind of fluid. It's very inclusive. All are welcome. Love is love type of worship. All right? So she observes that, and she makes that observation. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain in this way. They appeal to be an Abrahamic religion. They appeal to be a Mosaic religion. They also have all these other viewpoints of worship systems they've been adopting because, you know, I mean, all are welcome. At the end of the day, the Babylonians need to worship like they're in Babylon. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the Jews need to be worshiping the way that Jews do. So let, let's just mix it all up and just call it worship. And here's the temple. The other observation that she makes is, <laughs> I, was, I was looking at this and I'm like, man, if she would have said that, this, in, this, in this generation, she would have been canceled real quick, right? Look down with me to verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people. What you mean, you people? Who, who is you people? Cancel. Say that it is in Jerusalem, and she's referring here, the you people here is the Jews, because she's talking to Jesus, who is a Jew. Claimed that worship ought to happen at this place, where is that place? That place is Jerusalem, the site of the Jewish temple. Again, the site of the Jewish temple built by Ezra and Nehemiah. You can go and read those books to get details on them. It is a site where the law and the prophets were central for worship. They read the law and they read the prophets. It was a site where ceremonial laws, keeping of the ceremonial laws, like the uh, keeping of Sabbath and the keeping of the different festivals and the keeping of uh, the sacrificial um, atoning, all those things, they were central for their worship. A few weeks ago, we saw how it was like a bloodbath, the temple the way we think of it is like this nice structure, you know, clean and everything else. But by the altar, there was so much blood. There's a pool of blood. There's a, there's a bloody scene there because of the centrality of the ceremonial law in the Jewish temple. And she knows this and she observes this. And it's also a place of worship that gave way to the three groups of people that eventually ended up killing Jesus the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. These are the people, the Pharisees, are the social and the theological elites. They don't, they don't dress the same as everybody. They're socially kind of distinguished people. Theologically, they're kind of like by the book, hyper-orthodoxy. Oh, no, you didn't just eat that shrimp. Go and lock yourself for a week and cleanse yourself and then come back. Type of deal. They were by the book, super hyper orthodox. They distinguished themselves from the population. The Sadducees were the priestly elites who rejected the resurrection. Uh, we we were singing a song where that as he would as he uh, 
arose, so I will rise, right? I don't think the Sadducees would have sang that line in that verse because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But there were a priestly group of people there, and the scribes are the intellectual and the cultural elites. I mean, they got into everywhere. I mean, these are the guys that went to Harvard's of that day, and they knew how to read and write, which was not, by the way, Praise God that we are born in this age because everybody in this room, for the most part, if I'm not assuming, and if I'm, if I'm mistaken, you can, you can correct me later and I would um, confess and repent of that, can at least read and write. That wasn't customary at the time where this conversation was happening. So the scribes <laughs> were the ones that can read and write and they can actually have access to many, many. They can have access to the Roman side of things. They can have access to the religious side of things, the business side of things. I mean, they can get into any door because they were educated. And then they can influence that culture too because of their intellectual elite status. This is the place and the form of worship that she notices when she says, you people say it's in Jerusalem. That's the site of that kind of worship that she notices. So what happens? Jesus responds to her observation. Not a question again. She didn't ask him, where should I go? Where should I, where, which one should I pick? She's just making an observation. But Jesus responds to her observation. I think that will give us insight as to what true spiritual worship is and his response is simple and it's trustworthy look down to verse 21 as he responds jesus said to her woman do what believe me that's a trustworthy statement if jesus is saying believe me and this is something that we we can only grasp by faith by the way it's very simple his response is trustworthy his response is simple as he begins saying, believe me. First thing he does is he disqualifies both places and forms of worship. Believe me. Neither in the mountain, on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Both sides disqualified. I mean, I can only imagine what she'd be feeling at this point. I'm like, wait, then, then, then what? Right? Because Jesus is disqualifying both places and forms of worship. Neither the progressive, liberal worship nor the conservative worship is acceptable before my Father in heaven. This is what Jesus says. Then, he judges or he gives the final analysis of these places and forms of worship as he continues in verse 24. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Here it is. Here's the judgment. Here's, here's what he sees from his perspective, from his divine perspective, which we'll come to later. What he's saying is one is worshiping out of ignorance but seeking. One group of people is ignorant but seeking. The, the Samaritan kind of worship, the liberal kind of worship, is, is not aware of 
the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They don't have the right view of, 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 of who God is. You're just worshiping what you don't know. This group lacks specific information that is necessary for salvation or how to truly relate to Yahweh, to God, to the one true God. That's his judgment. This is his analysis, not my words. You worship what you do not know. I don't know how else you can take it. You are ignorant of what you worship. You don't you don't you lack specific information about who God is. Yet you're trying though. You're seeking. You're trying to grasp something that you don't even know. So you're just kind of just throwing something on the wall, hoping that it would stick. And he says, that's not gonna stick. It's not that kind of worship that the Father seeks. That's an, an acceptable worship. And I think he does, he does this in a one-on-one conversation because if there was a Jew next to him, they'd be like, yeah, then, then ours is... He's like, no, you, we worship what we know, but we reject it. That's disqualified too, by the way. This other group of people, the conservatives... Those who, who are in Jerusalem, those who are kind of really by the book and they're, they're doing their best, they're also disqualified. Even though they're aware of the Father and their Messiah, the Christ, the Son, and they have seen the work of the Spirit and they, and they, they read it. We see Jesus telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that you search the Scriptures and it's all in vain because you miss me in it. Right? He calls them hypocrites. Woe to you, hypocrites. He even tells his followers, his disciples, that their righteousness must exceed of those of the Pharisees if they want to get into the kingdom of God. So that's an indication that even though they possess specific information about salvation, because salvation... It's from the Jews, according to Jesus right here. Salvation came from the Jews, right? Even though they have this specific information about salvation, they reject him and they emphasize the outwardly actions and appearances of worship. And Jesus says, both are disqualified because this is my final judgment. This is the analysis that makes me say, Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Most of us can probably relate to these, right? We're either in one group or another. We lack enough information about who God is and how we ought to worship Him. But we know we have to worship Him, so we try our best we keep trying, we go to this church and that church, we read this verse and that verse, and we do, we try our best, maybe, if that's the case. We listen to this music and that music, and then you look at all this other religions, and they're trying their best without knowledge. Or, we become hyper-legalistic. Hyper-religious. It's like, no, not everything, no, this is way, way... Now, the things of God need to be ser- taken seriously. I'm not discounting that. But this is where most of us are. 
even as I look around this morning, if you take a real assessment of where your heart is, you're either seeking without knowledge or you're holding fast to something that you know, but you're rejecting it. This describes us. This is what Jesus is describing, the heart of this woman. So Jesus then in verse 23, as we're working down these verses, this passage, he presents a remedy of worship. But not only a kind of worship, but a kind of worshipers that are acceptable before God the Father. Look at verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is. He does so in contrast to his judgment of this loose, unguarded, compromising kind of worship, and which is the Samaritan worship, and this rigid, legalistic, hypocritical kind of worship, right? These, these are the two things that we see here in, in contrast. On one hand, we have this loose, unguarded, very compromising and compromised worship. On the other hand, we have this rigid, legalistic, hypocritical worship which was the Jewish kind of worship. So he tells the woman about a time, about an event, about some juncture in history, some critical, pivotal moment in time that would come to pass, which, by the way, he says, is in fact happening as, we, as they speak. An hour is coming and now is. It's here now, he tells her. This is the remedy of worship and worshipers that are acceptable to God, he says. And according to Jesus, what does sincere worship look like? According to Jesus, sincere worship, from sincere worshipers, comes forth to the Father, the one true God. It's animated by, it's empowered by, it's motivated by the Spirit who gives life. Look down to verse 23 with me again. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, these are the sincere worshipers who give this sincere worship to the Father, that is motivated by, that is empowered by, that is animated by what? Spirit. Not the human spirit, by the way. It's the spirit who gives new life. Who gives the new birth that Jesus just talked about in the previous chapter. If you know John, we're in John chapter 4. In John chapter 3, Jesus has another one-on-one conversation with one of the Pharisees, the leading teachers of Israel, named Nicodemus. No, Nicodemus is his name. He just talked to him at night, so, you know, it's kind of like a theological pastor's joke. It's like Nick and Knight. You guys never watched Nick and Knight growing up? No? Okay, good, thank you. So, trying to be trendy here a little bit. Forgive me, we shouldn't be trendy. No. Definitely not trying to be trendy. But this is what he tells them, right? 
you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of into the kingdom of God. And, and, and Nicodemus says, wait, I'm an old man. How am I going to go back into my mother's womb and get born again? And Jesus says, no, this is a spiritual birth. The spirit gives you new birth. And that same spirit that gives you new birth is the one that empowers true worship. Is the is is what actually animates true worship that the Father accepts. Sincere worship is motivated by the Spirit who gives new life and new birth. And sincere worship from sincere worshipers is animated and motivated and empowered by the truth who is the Son, who testifies of the things of the Father and sets the seal of God's truthfulness. Look with me real quick. If you're in John 4, just look at John chapter 3, starting in verse 22 and 23. I'm sorry, verses 32 and 33. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness. This is talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the truth, the way, and the life. And no one receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this. What is it? God is true. The one who receives God's Son's testimony. The truth, who is the Son, who testifies of the things of the Father, and he sets the seal that says God is true. In other words, the kind of worshipers that God the Father seeks, that desires, Jesus says, are those that have the Son and the Spirit. Or it's those that have been born of the Spirit to come to the Son, the embodiment of truth itself. What does this mean? You know, it's up here. Bring it down. I can't explain it. How does this exactly work practically? Look at verse 24. Jesus is speaking here again. And he goes straight to the nature and the essence of who God is. That God is spirit. He's not material, by the way. This is, this is in contrast of... God is not like us. God is unlike anything that is in creation. God is spirit. He is not a material thing. He's not a tree. He's not a sun. He's not a moon. He's not a building. He's not a mountain. He's not a man, even, in a way that you and I are men and women or humanity. God is immaterial. And because he is spirit, because he is not material, the truth has to be revealed by his spirit. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? I think Paul explains this in a very vivid picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. And this is such a glorious truth I wish to thank God about. Here's what the Word of God says. 
But to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Now the things that are hidden, the things that he's referring to is, if you look at verse 9, these are the things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of men. All that God has prepared for those who love him, because God is immaterial to things about him. Eyes have not seen him, ears have not heard him. We can't even imagine it in our hearts of hearts. These things, however, to us, Paul says in verse 10, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depth of God. Now, if God is Spirit, and if we want to know the truth about God, who tells this to us? According to the Scripture, this is the Spirit's work, who searches all things, even the depth of God. Verse 11, For who among men knows the depth of a man, except for the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the depth of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depth graciously given us by God, of which depth we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depth with spiritual words. So the Spirit reveals the truth about God in depth and in words. Verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the depth of the Spirit of God. Why? They are foolishness to him, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined is what my translation says. But the Greek word there actually has a sense of they're spiritually encrypted. They're locked. Only the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God can unlock them for you. So the natural man could not understand this. So the natural man could not come before you, in, whether it's in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem or 5411 Franconia Road, or wherever, wherever you are, you can't come as a natural man without the Spirit and the truth and worship God that is acceptable to him. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will direct him? Fascinating truth at the end of this. But we have the mind of Christ. Who is the we? Those who have been born by the Spirit. Those who have been given new life by the Spirit to come to the truth, to come to the Son and have faith in Him. This is what he's, Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman about. is her salvation. So because God is spirit and not material, the truth about God and his worship has to be revealed by his spirit. And according to Jesus, true worship is contingent on, it is necessary, it is a necessary condition for those who would come to God to worship him, would approach him to worship him, to be born of the spirit and to conform to the truth of God. This is what Jesus 
is telling this woman. This is what he's telling us now. And if you look at verse 25, the woman is starting to get it. She gets it. I mean, she knows what this prophet is saying has to be true. After all, he is a prophet. He is speaking on behalf of God. So she says to him, yeah, I know. I know that God is spirit. I, 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 can, I can attempt to, to, to that. I'm, 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 I think she's, she's thinking this. She realizes that God is true, and, and he is true, Then he is spirit. He is immaterial, and he's not like one of us. He's unlike anything in creation. And she also, I think she realizes that he can't be approached apart from his own nature, which is in spirit and in truth. And she knows for sure, I know that she knows this. The other two, maybe it's, I'm kind of reading in between the lines. But this one she knows for sure because she says it in verse 25. She knows that only Messiah, only Messiah, who is the chosen one, who is the anointed one, who is the Christ, John tells us, who is coming. Only him is able to make this topic of worship clear and accomplish this. Alas, by the way, the true point of the passage is presented. The whole conversation peaks here in verse 26. This is the climax of this narrative, which is the unveiling of the Son of God, the unveiling of the Christ. When Jesus says in verse 26, yeah, the one that you said that it makes this easy for you to understand and accomplish this for you, I am. I'm here. And Jesus is revealing his divinity to this woman, his divine nature. He even uses the I am that she would have been aware of. After all, she lives in a culture that is that accepts the book of Moses. Right? And you know, when Moses asked, Who's, who should I tell your people to set me? It says, I am sent you. So he even evokes that name here. He says, the Christ is telling you this. He's not just a prophet who knows a little fun facts about your life so that you can believe that he's actually from God. Remember what he told her, right? He didn't know her from, from anyone. And he tells her about, about her life, and she's, this is why she concluded that he's a prophet. He's like, no, I'm more than that. I'm, just, I'm, I'm just, that's just a prophet who knows a little bit about your life that nobody else knows. He's not just a sophisticated theologian or a teacher like the world would tell us today. Oh, Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was, you know, a good teacher. He wasn't just a good teacher. He reveals to her who he actually is. He is the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God and who was with God, 
who came into the world to tabernacle. This is John chapter 1. In the context of the book, we see this whole thing is playing out. The Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and is God and who came into this world to dwell among His people, not only to accomplish true worship, true spiritual worship, I'm sorry, not only to explain it, not only to explain to us, okay, this is what true spiritual worship looks like. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Okay? Try your best. I'm out. He didn't go. That's not what he did. He didn't just come to explain it. He came to accomplish it. This is the Christ who you've been waiting on, who accomplishes true spiritual worship for his people. Because... There's a huge chasm here, right? There's a, do, you, do you guys see the tension, by the way? Between man's inability to actually come to God in God's own term and God's high view of who he is and his worth and, and what he requires, there's a huge discrepancy. There's a huge chasm. There's a huge gap there. And Jesus... And his incarnation comes into this world, not only to explain, but to accomplish through spiritual worship of the Father. That would reconcile the difference, the chasm between the forms of worship. Which one do I go to? I want to be more liberal. I want to be more conservative. I know I want to go by the book. I want to be rigid. I don't want to be... That, that tension is accomplished. He reconciles that. But not only does he accomplish and, and, and reconcile the difference between this chasm of worship that is not accept, acceptable by the Father, but also he makes his people worthy worshipers in spirit and in truth by giving them himself, by indwelling them, by living in them, by giving them his spirit who lives in you and I today. After all, right, he came down from heaven. We just read that in John chapter 3. He, verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. So if he came from heaven, then he knows what heaven, what kind of worship heaven requires. He knows what his father and our father requires in terms of worship. God the Father receives worship from his children. He is adopted through his son, his Christ, by his spirit. I mean, there is... You, 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 you see, true spiritual worship, if I would use a theological word, is Trinitarian. 
each person of the Godhead is involved in it. The Father is the one being worshipped through the Son as the Spirit empowers them. The Spirit would empower you and reveal to you the truth, who is the embodiment of, of, of the truth. It's the Son who says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So as the Spirit leads us and reveals to us the truth about who Jesus is, He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. Then we're led to who Jesus is, and we can turn our eyes unto Jesus like we were singing when we began our worship time together. And then the Son, the the truth, would then lead us and bring us to the Father. And the Father receives that worship and says, this is acceptable worship. These are the kinds of worshipers that I'm seeking. According to Jesus, the truth. The one who gives to us his spirit, the one who brings us to the Father, this is true spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we get to understand, we get to see, we get to comprehend the truth about your word because you have given us your spirit, Lord. Lord, the things that you have prepared for us, no eye has seen, no no ear has heard, and it hasn't even entered into our hearts. But because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your love and kindness, because of your love, you have revealed them to us through your Spirit. Spirit that searches all things. So we ask that you continue to search us by your Spirit and lead us into all truth. As you promised through your Son, that when the Helper comes, the Spirit of truth, he will lead you into all truth. So Lord, we want to be worshipers who are acceptable before your sight. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Because that is the only way that you would accept this whole (coughs) congregational time together or our entire lives as worship. So Father, we ask that your spirit continues to search our hearts, lead us into truth about who you are so that we may walk and live and worship and sing and work and go to school and do the things that wherever we are in light of you and in light of our worship to you. Father, thank you for giving us the mind of Christ so that we may comprehend the things that the world does not comprehend. Lord, if there's anyone in this place that is trying to worship you in ignorance or that is trying to worship you in hypocrisy, whichever side there is. Father, let today be the day of salvation. Let Christ be the only one, Messiah who is the Christ, who comes and explains and shows us what true worship looks like, what true life looks like, the giver of the truth, 
and eternal life. Let this time be the time that they encounter Him in their heart. And just believe in Him. And in believing in Him, receive the gift of eternal life. Father, we ask that Your Spirit applies this truth that You've taught us to each of our lives according to Your riches and according to our needs. We ask You these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.